Your world is you. I am my world. Fact. Be gone. You're listening to Burdens, the podcast. I'm your host, Drew Kaiser. Every month I tell stories about crooked priests, crestfallen kings, damaged soldiers, witches, giants, and always prophets. Think thousands of years ago somewhere. The way it could have been, not the way it was. A world of dreams, prophecies, and wonders. A world like ours, filled with pain, tragedy, doubt, but also faith and redemption. A world where you just might encounter yourself. This is not your world, not mine. It's somewhere in between, in between. Listening to Burdens, Episode 10, Breach, Part 2. Last episode, we began a story that we're covering in four parts entitled The Breach. In this episode, we'll cover chapters 3 and 4. If you haven't already listened to Episode 9, you'll want to go back and listen to that before picking up here. We were introduced to a man named Eli who lived in the city of Jerusalem several centuries ago when it was attacked and he fled through a breach in the wall with several other refugees. After three weeks starving in the wilderness, Eli realized that if he did not lead the people out of there, they would all die. He decided to go back to the city to see if the enemy had left. When he got close, he couldn't tell, so He decided to go through the breach to get a look inside the walls, but when he did so, he found the unexpected. Where is Eli now? Or should I say when? Listen and you might find the answer. This episode picks up where the last one left off. The Breach, Chapter 3 Eli approached the counter of the flower shop, unsure how to begin. He wanted to talk to the woman, but he got the impression she didn't want to be bothered. Her face looked even more harried than his. Excuse me, he tried in Hebrew. The woman behind the counter seemed lost in a daydream. She stared at something over Eli's shoulder. He couldn't tell what. Excuse me, he said more loudly this time. She inhaled suddenly through her nose as if she had just been awakened from a deep sleep and turned, noticing him for the first time. Oh, I'm sorry, she said as she nervously smoothed her hair and shifted on her stool behind the counter. Relieved that she seemed to understand him, he said, Yes, I... so... let's see. I'm not really sure where to start. What if she were one of them? Maybe he passed out while crossing the breach and had been asleep for a long time, long enough for them to have replaced his people with hers so they could occupy the city with their shameful clothes and smoking horseless chariots. He had to be careful. 
find out what had happened without revealing too much. Are you looking for bouquets, she said, suddenly filled with new energy. Maybe something for your director and the producers. She sprang out of her seat and floated over to a display rack filled with spring bouquets and buckets of water. She selected a couple of arrangements to show Eli, who stared at her slack-jawed while she kept speaking. Oh, but you must not forget the poor stage manager and costume designer. Nobody ever remembers them. Although... She spun around and studied his tunic while stroking her chin. I'm not too sure she deserves much recognition for that. Producers? Yes, you're an actor, no? In a play? Eli squinted and shook his head. What was this woman going on about? He had to learn what had happened. What has happened to the city, he said. His tone startled her. Her eyes grew large and her face remembered its troubled expression. She returned the bouquets to their places on the rack and reclaimed her stool, putting the counter between herself and the strange man standing in her shop wearing a tattered tunic. Where did the northern horde go? he said. The woman wrinkled her brow and looked up at him with a frown. What did you say? The invaders, the siege. They breached the wall. Where did they all go? The woman pushed away from her counter as far as her stool would allow. Eli could tell he had startled her. For the last several months, he had felt like prey, but now he felt like a deadly hunter, seeing her shrink away from him like that. He caught a glimpse of himself, filthy and disheveled, in a mirror on the wall, and realized how imposing and strange he must have seemed to her. Please, I, I mean no harm. I don't know what has happened. His voice trailed in a quaver. She softened a little. Her eyes turned soft and brown. They conjured up an image in Eli's mind of Isla in happier days, running in a golden field, grain waist-high, wide as the world. She laughed as she ran to him. He opened his arms to hold her small frame. The heads of grain drifted in the wind and became her eyes, her dark brown eyes. Eli willed himself out of his daydream and looked at the living woman before him. Her eyes were scared, perplexed. They pointed toward his, but fixed on something beyond him, on a place he could not see. Her thoughts seemed to be racing faster than his. Let's start over, she said and tried to smile. My name's Beth. What's yours? Eli. Eli. There was something comforting about hearing her say his name. Now, why don't you start by telling me about yourself, like where you're from and why you're here? Are you not an actor or something? She examined his long, unkempt beard and tattered tunic. I've come from the wilderness. I don't know. I'm lost. Yes, she said. Her head turned toward the center of the shop. I've been feeling a little lost myself today. No, I mean I really don't know where I am. Beth furrowed her brow and studied the man in her shop for a moment. Here, she said as she pulled a folded document from a stack that lay on the counter and spread it out so Eli could read it. It was a map, the detail and coloring more brilliant than any writing he had ever seen. When he leaned over to look at it more closely, he noticed that her hair smelled like almond blossoms. 
This is a map of the old city of Jerusalem. We are here in the Jewish quarter. Jewish? Yes, silly, Jewish, you know. Abraham, Moses, and the Israelites, King David, Anne Frank, Woody Allen, Jews, you know. Eli stared at the map in stunned silence. I have never heard my people called by that name before. Beth's face contracted again. She paused as if she were having second thoughts about having this conversation, then returned her attention to the map. Over here is the Muslim quarter, here is the Christian quarter, and here is the Armenian quarter, and here is the Temple Mount. The temple? Eli said hopefully. Can you take me there, to the temple? Beth laughed. Well, it's not like I can take you to the temple. I can take you to where it was. Eli's heart sank. Of course. The hostiles must have raised the temple during the siege. The bell at the door announced the entrance of a well-dressed young couple. Beth smiled toward them as they entered. They smiled back. Then they looked at Eli, who was speaking to Beth, oblivious that someone else had entered the room. Their smiles dropped when they saw him, and they diverted their attention to the rack of bouquets. Eli focused his attention upon Beth. Her shoulder-length black hair was held back by an amber-colored plate, and she wore a simple white button-down blouse and sleeve coverings on her legs. Her lips were full and red. A thin silver chain hung around her slender neck, holding a pendant in the shape of a cross. He had never seen jewelry like that before. Did it signify something special in this place? He stared at it for a second, but quickly shifted his gaze, blushing because it rested against her skin. Talking to an unfamiliar woman in public made him uncomfortable. His instincts told him to run, but he fought the urge to retreat and tried to concentrate. After an uncomfortably long silence, she said, Why are you dressed like that? It looks like you've come from play practice. Eli looked down at his soiled, tattered tunic and rubbed it self-consciously, then looked back up at her, confused. They're a little dirty. I've been living in the wilderness with the others for the last 25 days. The others? What others? Where are they now? In the wilderness. He pointed at the place where the smoking breach had been, which was now a plaster wall displaying wreaths of flowers. We fled the city during the siege, and we have been surviving in the wilderness for 25 days. I came to see if the hostels had cleared out, hoping we might be able to return. The couple, who couldn't help overhearing their conversation, shot an alarmed look in their direction. The young man seized his companion by the arm and led her out the door. Beth gave Eli an annoyed look. What siege? And where's this wilderness you're talking about? Who are you, Rip Van Winkle? You act like you've been sleeping for a thousand years. So is that it? Are you working with them? Did they put me to sleep like this torn Winkle fellow and replace my people with harlots and horseless chariots? Eli's emotions were rising, and he leaned over the counter, shouting these conspiracies at Beth, who almost fell off her stool trying to create space between herself and this madman who burst through her door a few moments earlier. You need help, she yelled. That's what I've been trying to tell you. Why don't you find the rest of your David and Goliath friends, go back to play practice, and leave me alone? I've got enough to worry about without you running off my customers, 
standing here in your stinky shepherd outfit and wasting my time. You don't understand. I, I think you should go. Eli bitterly snatched up the map from the counter and stormed out, nearly breaking his arm trying to push the door open. Pull, barked Beth. Nobody ever seemed to understand how her door worked. Chapter 4 Eli stood on the sidewalk outside the flower shop examining his map. Beth had pointed out where they were, the Jewish quarter. According to the map, the wall wasn't where he had come out of the flower shop, but several hundred feet away. Eli made his way over to it, the map guiding him, and tried not to get distracted by the unusual sights and sounds surrounding him. He learned quickly to respect the horseless chariots. They did not stop for pedestrians. Also, he had to do something about his clothes. His appearance drew a lot of unwanted attention. He studied the people milling along the street, not relishing the idea of dressing to match their styles. The clothes they wore looked tight, and the thought of wearing them made him feel embarrassed. But he didn't know how long he would be here, or if he would ever escape. So he would have to do his best to fit in, which meant finding some new clothes as soon as possible. The wall was not at all what he expected. Not only was it in the wrong place, it was narrower and twice as tall. The stones comprising it were smaller than he remembered, and the top was lined with battlements. He also spied several watchtowers he could not recognize. An overweight man with a red goatee wearing a brown, wide-brimmed hat led a group of elderly people along the wall. He had a pack strapped to his back, and he was talking incessantly, gesturing toward the wall as he did so. At intervals, the crowd looked at one another and smiled and nodded, pleased with what he was saying. Suleiman ordered that the walls should have thirty-four watchtowers and seven gates. Construction lasted approximately four years and concluded in 1541. They are almost two and a half miles long and encompass a third of a square mile. Eli eavesdropped on the man's presentation. He was too far away to hear every word, but he learned enough to complicate the mysterious riddle he had fallen into. What did he mean by 1541? Is that a date? When was that? Eli waited until the man finished answering questions and the crowd dissipated. Then he approached the man warily. He knew his appearance would raise questions, but he had to take the chance. I'm sorry, I don't have any cash on me, the man said, dismissing Eli with a wave. I don't want your silver. Can I ask you about the wall? The man cast a doubtful glance in Eli's direction. Well, the tour is over, and I was about to get some lunch. I can give you five minutes. What do you want to know? Who fixed the wall? Who fixed the wall when? The wall was breached. It's different now. Who fixed the wall? Look, sir, if you want me to answer your question, you have to be more specific. Slow down and tell me who exactly you mean breached the wall. The Northern Horde. Ah, you must mean the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Yes, that breach was not repaired for 150 years until... Nehemiah in 444 BCE. So this man Nehemiah, he built all this? No, the man frowned. 300 years after Nehemiah, the Hasmoneans expanded the walls, which Herod the Great elaborated upon a hundred years later, 
Then the Romans destroyed those walls and rebuilt them in the 3rd and 4th centuries CE. These were destroyed by earthquakes. Saladin reinforced them sometime around 1200 CE. And finally, the Ottomans built these walls in the 16th century CE. Does that answer your question? Eli stared numbly at the tour guide. The man threw out centuries of time as if he were eternity itself. So how many years from the Babylonians were these walls? The man wore a satisfied smile on his pudgy face. Oh, about 1900 years, give or take. The ground beneath Eli's feet buckled and swayed, and the horizon shifted 45 degrees. He broke out in a cold sweat and moaned involuntarily. Say, buddy, are you all right? A dark hood slowly fell over Eli's vision, and he passed out cold and fell onto the pavement. Eli woke up in a dimly lit room, lying on cool white sheets under a soft blanket. The last thing he remembered was talking to the heavy-set man on the sidewalk near the wall. Then everything went dark. The man told him something he couldn't remember what. His head was pounding too hard for him to think. Where was he now? He could tell he was in a room in a large building. He heard voices, some urgent, some casual, and unworldly high-pitched tones. Other sounds, heavy rolling objects, the forceful venting of air, a man crying for help, the revolting suctioning of viscous fluids resonated throughout the place. He craned his neck around the railing of the bed where he lay and saw a window through which he spotted the tops of trees, houses, and tall buildings. The room he was in must have been several stories above ground. He rotated his head around and saw a box looming over him beside his head on the left side of the bed. The box was covered with lights and strange characters and it whirled and beeped in his ear as if it were some strange idol trying to communicate heresies. A transparent cord trailed away from it. His eyes followed it until it ended in his hand. Eli's breathing quickened. He panicked and pushed himself up in the bed, kicking the bedding and whimpering pitifully through his nose, which made him aware of more cording wrapped around his face and going into his nostrils. He grasped the cord connected to his hand tightly and was about to yank it out of his body to keep whatever it was from entering him when a soft hand fell upon his arm. A woman's voice. Shh. You're okay. Eli turned his head to the other side of the bed to see who it was and found himself looking into the brown eyes of the woman from the flower shop. You. What are you doing here? Where am I? She removed her hand from his arm and eased back into the chair beside the bed. She spoke in a soothing tone. It's going to be okay. You passed out in the street, and they've taken you to a hospital. You've been asleep for almost 24 hours. Eli's eyes slowly left hers and surveyed the room as he tried to process what she had told him. Then he remembered the cord stuck in his hand. He looked at it, his face twisting in panic. Leave it alone. They're giving you fluids by IV. You were severely malnourished. Eli laid back and tried to believe her, unable to take his mind off the fluid dripping from the box in his veins. Why are you here? I mean, how did you find me? Zozo. Zozo? Well, after I closed the shop, 
I saw Zozo sitting cross-legged on the ground, cradling somebody in his lap, fanning him with his hat. That someone turned out to be you. I went over to see what was going on, called an ambulance, and here you are. Who's Zozo? The tour guide, she said. He said you were asking all these questions about the wall, how old it was and who built it, and then all of the sudden you collapsed onto the sidewalk. Eli now remembered what the tour guide had said. About 1900 years, give or take. The words set off alarms in his nervous system, and he began to shiver more from panic than cold. H have you been here the whole time? I must have stumbled on you two right after you fainted. She stifled a snicker by making a loose fist under her nose. I think he thought you had died. His face was bright red and he kept praying, Lord, don't take him, please, Lord, don't take him. Her words broke into laughter. Then she noticed Eli shivering and gasped, You poor thing, are you cold? I'm so sorry, I'm laughing while you're freezing to death in that thin hospital gown. Eli glanced under the blanket and noticed he was nearly naked, which didn't help his nerves. I think there's another blanket. Beth jumped up from her chair and rummaged through a wooden cabinet on the wall. That was when Eli noticed an olive-skinned boy, about nine, who had been sitting behind Beth on an easy chair in the corner of the room, bent over and working furiously on something in his lap with a pencil. Beth returned with the blanket and spread it over Eli's gaunt frame. Who's that? Eli gestured toward the boy in the corner. That's my son Joshua. Eli watched her and waited for her to elaborate. Just the two of us. She said this while fussing with the blanket in a manner that suggested to Eli that he should stop prying and change the subject. The blanket helped, but he was still shivering. He stared at the wall in front of him. A white board covered with colorful markings was mounted next to a flat rectangular black glass. Cords trailed from the glass into the wall. Cords everywhere, coming out of boxes running into walls, into him. Beth hooked a bag around her shoulder and remained standing. Listen, I've got to go. Is there anyone I can call for you, family, friends, someone who can look after you until you get back on your feet? I'm all by myself, he said sullenly, like I told you before. Beth shifted her gaze to the floor for an instant, then said, Well then, Zozo said he'll be by later with some fresh clothes. They threw away that old costume. He'll help you get checked out, find some place for you to stay till you get sorted out. Eli looked up and managed to smile. Thanks for staying with me. I'm glad you woke up. Me too, I think. She turned toward the door, extending her hand for the boy to take it, but instead of running to his mother, he hopped up from the chair and scuttled over to Eli's bed with the sketch he'd been feverishly drawing and handed it wordlessly to Eli, who accepted it as if it held the answers to the riddle that had been his life for the last day and a half, which, for all he knew, maybe it did. Eli examined the paper in his hand. It was see-through, like onion skin. On it was a connect-the-dot sketch of two crude dippers, the larger one at the bottom and a smaller upside-down one at the top. He recognized it as a drawing of the constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, with Polaris at the tip of the handle. Joshua ran to his mother, who smiled and tussled his hair. He's obsessed with the stars. 
He traces them out of his book. Thank you, Joshua. I will treasure it always. The boy responded by giving Eli a shy grin and then followed his mother out of the room. There you have it, chapters three and four of The Breach. Will Eli's new friends, Beth, Zozo, and Joshua, help him find his way home? You'll have to wait two weeks until the next episode to find out. You can visit my website at drewkaiser.com or follow me on Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date on all the things related to burdens. Spread the word, tell your friends about it. We want as many people as possible to be able to listen in and join us in these stories. If you haven't done so already, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The music you hear on this podcast is The Wasteland by Ross Bugden. The voice you hear at the top of the podcast is Wallace Stevens reading his poem, Phantoms in Pine Woods. As always, thank you for your feedback, your kind words, and most of all, just for listening. We'll see you next time.